Well, as we come to the preaching of God's Word, we prepare ourselves to remember the Lord's table, His life and death and resurrection. So we do come to a great text for that. I invite you to join me in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, where we are picking up where we left off last week in verses 1 through 7. John 14, verses 1 through 7. Not only the perfect text to prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, but the perfect text for us, given the fallen world in which we live, a world filled with, to borrow Jesus' words, a world filled with trouble, with uncertainty, with chaos, sorrow and distress and sin that fill our world on the personal level, on the international level. And yet what is Jesus' promise to his apostles and by extension to every believer in verse one? Do not let your hearts, your inner core, the seed of your personality and emotions, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be shattered or agitated or stirred. For the believer, the outside trouble in the world does not need to become inner turmoil in our hearts. We are only a few hours away from Jesus' betrayal and death. And Christ here is giving his apostles hope when all seems hopeless. He's calming their hearts, hearts that have been overcome with fear and dread and confusion. This night, this night is like no other night. It will be a night of shock as the apostles will watch Judas, one of their own, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. It will be a night of worry as they will barricade themselves in an upper room afraid they're next. It will be a night of regret as each of them will flee, leaving Jesus in the garden alone with his captors. It'll be a night of grief, as Peter will deny Jesus three times. Trouble is on the horizon. And yet Jesus here calls his apostles to turn their fear into faith. Calls them to trust him, to trust his words. Believe, verse one, believe in me. Rest on every heart calming promise I am about to give you. That's what he does for the next 30 verses. He offers his apostles and us the most wonderful promises found anywhere in all the scriptures. On the worst of nights, Jesus promises the most wonderful of promises. He says, heaven is secured for you. Be assured of that. It's verses one through seven. He promises the indwelling and sealing and teaching of the Holy Spirit, verse 16. He promises the never-ending love of the Father, verse 23. He promises the supernatural peace from Christ, verse 27. The most wonderful promises. Each promise meant to calm a troubled heart. 
These are promises every believer can cling to in those troubling times. All in all, there are 12 total promises Jesus gives in this chapter. We began looking at the first one last week. Promise number one, be hopeful. In the midst of trouble and pain, in the midst of sorrow and heartache, in the midst of uncertainty and chaos, every believer can find hope. Why? Here's why. Because the Father's perfect and joyous and sinless and eternal house, that's our future home. The Father's house is our future home. Jesus begins to ease his apostles' temporal fears by giving them an eternal perspective. So look at verse one, get a running start. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because verse two, in my father's house, that's the present heaven, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Here's the application. Whatever loss that you might experience in this life, you will never lose your future home in glory. Whatever heartache you will experience in this fallen world, it will one day be replaced by eternal joy. Again, Jesus' promise, your heavenly home is certain and it is perfect and it is untouchable. And so Jesus describes this future home. First of all, he said that our heavenly home will be filled with fatherly care. Our heavenly home will be filled with fatherly care. That's what that phrase, my father's house, emphasizes. This is family intimacy to Father's love and acceptance. There's a warmth in this home like a child would experience when he leaves the house and then returns in that culture. The Father would welcome him and his family back to the house. And so too it will be for all of God's children. We will make our residence in our loving Father's estate. He will give us dwelling places. It's another phrase that emphasizes intimacy and closeness. We'll have rooms within this home. So God's home will be, in every sense, God's home will be our home. Jesus then adds, our heavenly home is a gift of sacrificial love. It's a gift of love. Never doubt his love. So we see at the end of verse two, Jesus promises, I go. This is my decision, my choice. No one is coercing me into this. I go to prepare a place for you. And as we saw last week, the place Jesus is going here, specifically, it's not heaven. That's not the place here, as if he has to clean heaven up for us. No, he's going to the cross. He's going to the cross in order to prepare heaven for us or us for heaven. 
The key to the Father's house is the cross of Christ. The deed to the Father's home is the sacrifice Savior. It'll be the sacrifice he offers in just a few hours. And why does he do all of this? Back to chapter 13, verse 1. That sets the stage. He does all of this. Why? Because he's loving us. He's loving his own to the end, to perfection. In the midst of every sorrow, we need never doubt our Savior's love for us. Heaven is a gift of sacrificial love. Third description Jesus gives here, our heavenly home will be a glorious reunion with Christ. A glorious reunion with Christ. Verse three, if I go to prepare a place for you, which I will, that's what he's doing. Through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the promises I will come again and receive you to myself. The apostles thought they were losing Christ. Christ assures them that it would not be forever. They would one day be with him physically again. And the promise here is that this future reunion would be far better than anything. It would be far better than anything they had experienced in the last three years when they were with Christ. For the last three years, they were with Jesus during his humiliation, his limitation They experienced his presence in their fallenness. But Jesus says one day when he returns, it will be a reunion very much better. It will be a reunion with the glorified Christ. Not the humiliated Jesus. And it will be a time when our fallenness is removed. And we're given our resurrected bodies and we're able to experience the joy of Christ like never before. This will be a glorious reunion. And then description number four, our heavenly home is a place of perfect pleasure, leads right into it. A place of perfect pleasure, all wrapped up in that final phrase in verse three, where I am, where the glorious one is, there you, that's us, there you will also be completely satisfied in the presence of Jesus. Experiencing the fullness of joy promised. The pleasures forever. The sorrow, the sorrow would come upon these men. The sorrow and fear and worry will come upon us. Jesus assures us it will only be for a time, only for a time. It's limited. The darkness will one day lift. The fog of confusion will one day lift. The hurt will lift. And whatever loss we might experience in this world, it will one day be replaced by the divine joy of God himself. Be hopeful, Jesus says. It brings us now to the fifth description of our heavenly home. Fifth description. And this is the foundational description here that undergirds everything that we've just looked at, everything Jesus has just said. Here's description number five, so key. Description number five, access to this heavenly home can never be lost. 
This is why we can be hopeful. Access to this heavenly home can never be lost. Notice verse four. Jesus assures his apostles that this promised future home is theirs. He guarantees it for them. Just watch how this develops here, verse four. Jesus says, and you know the way. He's referring to the cross. You know the way, it's his death, where I am going, referring to heaven. The way, the path, the only path for Jesus to return to heaven was through his cross. That has been Jesus' message throughout this gospel. He will go to heaven through the cross. It's the only way for him to get there. Back in John chapter three, Jesus told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He must be lifted up on the cross to be lifted up to heaven, to glory. In John 12, Jesus said, the hour has come, the hour of my cross, my death, my suffering. The hour has come for what? For the son of man to be glorified. It's looking ahead. Christ's glory with the father will only come through his humiliation in his cross. In fact, look at the end of John 13, verse 31. He has just told his apostles this same thing. Verse 31, now, referring to the coming cross, now is the son of man glorified. The cross must come before I receive the crown. Verse 32, God will in the future, God will, because of the cross, glorify him, glorify his son. So death is Jesus's way to heaven. You know the way I am going. Agony is Jesus's way to glory. Suffering is Jesus's way back to the Father's house where he came from. He must die on the cross. That's how he gets to heaven. And so verse five, Thomas, the apostle who is never afraid to express his own fears, his own doubts, questions, confusion. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. We're confused here. We're confused. You say you're going to the Father's house to the cross. We're confused. How do we know the way? How do we know our way? What's our path to heaven? How can we be sure that we'll be with you in the Father's house? Thomas is worried here. Worried that he will not be able to go where Jesus is going. You've told us, Jesus, that we can't go with you to the cross. You've made that perfectly clear. So chapter 13 ended, verse 33. Where I am going, again, referring to the cross at that point, where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 36, where I go, the cross, you cannot follow. Here's Thomas's dilemma. Here's his fear. We know that the only way to the Father's house is through your cross, Jesus. 
That's what you've said all along. But now you've told us that we can't go with you to your cross. So does that mean then that we also can't go with you to the Father's home, to his house? How do we know the way? Thomas is asking, how do we get to heaven? What's our way to glory? To which Jesus then says in verse six, Jesus says to him, Thomas, come all of your doubts and all of your fears. Verse six, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is to say this, Thomas, my way, Jesus speaking, my way to the Father's house is through my cross. That's my way. It's the way only I can go. It's the path only I can walk. Only I am able to pay the wages of sin. Only I am able to exhaust the wrath of God. Only I am able to purchase forgiveness. Only I am able to reconcile sinners through death. The cross is my way to the Father. It's only my way. But your way? Your way to the Father's house is not by you going to the cross. Your way to heaven is not my way to heaven. No, your way to the Father is through faith in me. This is substitution. My way to the Father is through death. Your way to the Father is through faith in me. My cross will be your cross through faith. My sacrifice will be your sacrifice through faith. Thomas, I'm going my way to the cross on your behalf so that you can enter heaven through me. That's the promise here. Again, at verse six, so often Jesus' words here, the words here are used in an evangelistic way, right? We use it in evangelism, and that is right and that is good. We turn here in verse six when we speak to unbelievers. We emphasize Jesus is the only way to heaven. Again, that is true and that is good, that is right. But notice, Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers here in verse six. Judas has been dismissed. He's speaking to believers. This is not an evangelistic message. This is a promise of assurance. Assurance for the believer. It's a promise of assurance to calm our troubled heart. Yes, we can use this as a text of confrontation, for lack of a better term. For an unbeliever, you think there's multiple ways to heaven, you're wrong. It's only Jesus. But primarily, this is a comforting promise for us, the believer. And the promise is this, for all who walk the way, for all who walk the path of faith in Christ, they are guaranteed entrance into the Father's home. Guaranteed entrance. They will never be turned away. Not because of how righteous they are in themselves, 
and not because of any work they have offered God, and not because of their ability to appease a holy God. No, they will be accepted into the Father's home because Christ walked that way. He went to that cross. He purchased our key to heaven through his suffering. Again, this is comforting. Hope, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We never need to doubt our future home. We never need to let our hearts become troubled. Now, just break this down a bit. Again, a heart-calming promise. Each part of verse six underscores our assurance of heaven. Number one here, number one, notice, Jesus uses the language of deity. It's the language of deity. This is I am. I am. It's the divine name of God. Claims to be the I am, and then he couples that, that divine name with his ability to save. This is a divine assurance. We've seen Jesus do this before. This is the sixth time Jesus has said, I am, and then followed that with some metaphor of salvation. I am the bread of life, Jesus has said. Only I can give you life from heaven. I am the light of the world, Jesus has claimed. Only I can shine the light of God's holiness upon you. I am the door. Only I can grant entrance to the saving fold of God. I am the good shepherd. Only I can lay down my life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Only I can give you a resurrection body and life with God. That's me. It's only me. Here Jesus says, I am the way. I am that only path that leads to the Father's house. I am the God-man who will walk that path for you. So our assurance of heaven here, our assurance is a divine assurance given to us from the I am. Second notice here that Jesus claims to be the exclusive savior from sin. He's the only way. He's not just a way to the Father. He's the way. It's the only way. And notice he does not simply point to the way or proclaim the way or show the way. He himself is the way. He and he alone is the path to heaven through faith in him alone. Now this is striking. You put this in its first century Judaism context. Because the religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders had taught that the way to God was through obedience to their man-made commandments. You obey our man-made commandments and you have life with God. Jesus says no man-made rule will grant you access to the Father's house. There is no act of obedience. That's on Christ. There's no act of obedience you can offer that can appease a holy God. None. Remains true today. 
No act of penance, no religious work, no human effort will ever gain access to glory. And here's the comfort, here's the assurance, because if we could gain on our own, if we could gain access to glory, if we could somehow earn heaven, then we could also lose heaven. Christ says here, no. The act of obedience is on him. And that act of obedience will be our act of obedience through faith. Expand it out though, first century Greek context, all their pantheon of gods, a whole range of gods, saviors in the plural. Jesus says that every other God is a false God. False God. Every other savior leads to hell, not to heaven. Be assured he's the only savior. He was sent from God. He will be accepted by God. But I think there's a third context here that we can apply these words. It's more of the personal context for Jesus' apostles. Because remember, Jesus has just told them that they're going to leave him on this night. They're gonna flee. He has just told Peter that Peter was going to deny him three times. And so no doubt, as Jesus makes this promise of a heavenly home, here's what they're wondering. Is there any hope for us after this night? Will our failure, our sin, our fleeing, our denying negate our entrance into the Father's house? These are the same questions that believers ask today. Has my sin negated Christ's gospel? Has my failure nullified Jesus' salvation of me? Jesus' answer to them is a resounding no. No. Entrance into the Father's home is not because our perfection gets us there. No, entrance into the Father's home is because Christ gets us there. I am the way. To which Jesus then adds, I am the truth. I am the truth. There is no other Savior but Christ. There's no other true gospel but Christ's gospel. Every other gospel is error. Every other gospel is damning. Every other gospel leads away from the Father's home. Only Jesus can truly fulfill God's redemptive requirements on our behalf. That is what he will do. Just a few hours, he is the only true savior. He is the truth. And then he says, I'm also the life. I'm the life. I am the only source of eternal life. This is all about Christ. Every part of salvation rests in him. I am the life. The irony here, the apostles will see Jesus die very soon. They will watch his lifeless body be taken off the cross and sealed shut in a tomb. 
But here Jesus says, I am the life. Death will not hold me. It cannot hold me. The implication here is this, because death cannot hold me, it cannot hold you. I will rise again from the dead and all who come to me in saving faith, I will be their life. They too will rise again from the dead. Death cannot hold any who Christ gives life to. I think we can probably see a connection here even to what Jesus did with Lazarus. Because he said there, I am the resurrection and the life. Similar wording. I am the resurrection and the life. What you saw me do with Lazarus, that's what I'm gonna do for all who come to me in saving faith. Death cannot hold me, it cannot hold you. Each claim here Jesus makes is a heart-calming promise of assurance for us as believers. If you are mine, if you are mine, if you have come to me in saving faith, then heaven is your guaranteed home. And I will make sure that you get there. I'm your way, your truth, your life. So in times of trouble, when heartache mounts, when uncertainty seeks to fill our hearts, when we're tempted to maybe doubt the Father's acceptance of us, if we ever fear that some sin has canceled out our eternal inheritance, Jesus says back in verse one, believe in me, believe in me, cling to me, cling to the way to God, that's me, the truth of God, the life of God, because, finish verse six, no one comes to the Father but through me. My promise to you is this, despite the sorrows you will face in this life and the threats you will soon encounter and the pain your obedience to me will entail, Jesus says, my way will always lead you home always and my gospel will never let you down and the door to my father's house will always be open to you be hopeful yes we can use verse 6 in evangelism and we should but verse 6 here is a promise of eternal security for the believer which then Jesus seals, mark this, he seals his apostles' eternal security in verse seven. He seals it. Jesus says, verse seven, if you had known me, there's a few ways you can translate this. Right here in the New American Standard, it sounds like Jesus might be doubting the apostles' faith in him. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think that fits the context. Jesus is assuring them, not rebuking them. Can translate it also, you know me, affirmation. You know me. You've come to know me in saving faith. That's what they've done. They've confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. They've left all to follow him. 
Back in chapter 13, he's already told them, you've been cleansed from your sin. They've been bathed in forgiveness. We saw that in chapter 13. Jesus is affirming his apostles' faith in him here, I believe. You know me in a saving way. I've seen your faith, it is true, and thus not. You would have known, but better, you will know. Again, affirmation, assurance, you will know. Because of your faith in me, you will know. Sometime in the future, you will know the presence of my Father also. Assurance. The door of my Father's house will one day be open to you. In fact, let's make this even better, Jesus says. You don't need to even wait until heaven to begin this relationship with the Father. Because, continue verse seven, from now on, because of your faith in me, you know him. Right now, right now as I speak, you've been accepted by my father, reconciled to him, adopted by my father. The father's home is your future. Now here's the question though. How can Jesus make such an affirmation to these men? How can Jesus speak on behalf of his father in such a definitive and eternal way? How can Christ at this point guarantee that his father is going to accept them? How can he make that guarantee, that assurance? Here's how. Finish verse seven, because the father and son are so united, Jesus can say, when you look at me, you have seen him. When you see me, you have seen the Father. That's how united we are, how close we are. It's a claim of full deity. It's a claim of divine unity. And Jesus is not saying, I'm the same person as the Father. It's not what he's saying. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Jesus' point here, though, is that both share the same nature as God. He is fully God. The Father is fully God. Both he and the Father share the same deity as God. The same ontological nature, equality as God. No wonder you could use the name I am. We share the same name, the I am. And so to see Jesus and to hear Jesus is to see and hear the Father. That's how unified they are. That's how equal they are. This is why John told us back in chapter one, he sets the stage for all of this. Chapter one, no one has seen God the Father at any time. No one, spirit. The only begotten God, the eternal son of God, he has explained him. He has made him visible. 
That's why Paul calls Jesus the image, the visible likeness of the invisible God. This is why the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Because to see Jesus is to see the very nature of the first person of the Trinity. And thus, they are one in purpose. They are one in plan. They are one in promise. This is why the apostles and us, this is why the apostles and every believer never need to let our hearts be troubled. Because no matter the circumstance of our life or any loss we might face or the uncertainty we might experience when Jesus promises his people heaven, his promise is secure. It will never be revoked by the Father. It can't be. They're unified. We must never doubt his promise as believers, true believers, not only because Jesus is the way to heaven and not only because Jesus is the truth of God and not only because Jesus is the life needed to enter into God's presence, but also because when Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. When the Son promises his people glory, the Father will always receive them. He will always welcome them. Our future glory is not wishful thinking. It is a settled fact, sealed by our divine Savior's promise. It is true, we live in a chaotic time. And there are certainly, if we wanted to find them, there are certainly enough reasons to let our hearts become troubled in this world. And yet, what is our Savior's remedy here? He calls us to maintain an eternal perspective. He commands us here to anchor our hope, anchor our hope not in this world, but in our heavenly home to come. And it is a place like none other, none other. A house filled with fatherly care, a gift of sacrificial love, a reunion with our glorious Savior, a place of perfect peace. And all of that, all of that is guaranteed by the one who went his way to the cross so that he could be our way to heaven. Oh, Christian, be hopeful. Be hopeful. The Father's house is our future home. Father, I pray that we would find comfort in these promises and that we would have a great expectation of what is to come. And indeed, we would replace our fear with faith in Christ. We'd believe him, cling to these words. 
Yet these promises are only through his cross. And that is what we celebrate now and remember as a church family. Pray that you would forgive in that relational way, forgive any sins that we might be harboring in our hearts. Grant us repentance to turn from those sins in faith to you. That we would remember the perfect life, sacrificial death, the glorious resurrection of Jesus with a, in a worthy way. That this would be an act of worship, not hypocrisy. So forgive us. Be pleased with this remembrance. Pray this because of Christ. Amen.